Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode of Living Line Outdoors. On the mic with you, it's Saturday. It's story time. We finished our Rick Joyner book, Epic Battles of the Last Days. I pray that it's uh, found you in a new place. I want to bring us to a place. Um, I, I hope we have some some entertainment, maybe. Um, just good read with this book. We'll still learn. There, it's still a, it's quite a story. I happen to happen to know this particular author personally. Uh, met him while I was youth pastoring in Durango, Colorado. Uh, he wrote this book uh, somewhere back around '97, maybe. Um, and it's it's a storyline. So we're, we're gonna we're gonna follow a story that I think you'll find intriguing. I think you'll find, um, even though it was written uh, when it was written in '97. I believe you'll see a relevance to what we have going on in our world today. Um, I, I hope so. I hope you see the spiritual emphasis of spiritual warfare that's going on. The book is called A White Stone. It was written by my friend Jim Corbett. Uh, I say my friend. I met Jim while we were in Durango. Uh, he was going to another church. We actually did a playwright on this. They they did a play. I got to be one of the characters in this book. Um, we might talk about that when we get towards the end. But it is an intriguing, intriguing insight, intriguing write. I do believe that God gave him the insight to write this because I believe it's relevant to where we are even today. So with that, I'm going to give you some things first before we get into chapter one. But this is the author's note, and it says this. This is from Jim Corbett. The book, A White Stone, has been written to display the true hearts of individuals, the power of God at work when he has surrendered vessels for his use, and the true freedom an individual can have when he or she has entered into the peace of the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. It is a fictional account of possible coming events, divided into three sections that flow into one another without definitive boundaries. The first area deals with how many things have been in the past. Next, how they are at present. And depending on upon when you happen to be reading the book. And finally, how they may be in the future. The, fa- the characters are fictional and a composite of people that I have known. Their lives intend to relay to the reader that the spirit, the power, and the quality of life that Jesus lived is as our example is available to each of us as we surrender fully to him. A White Stone is part of a trilogy of books. Its companion books are A White Stone Workbook and From Our Father's Heart to You. This series is designed to assist you, the reader, in responding to the wooing of the Holy Spirit so that each of us might sell out completely to Jesus. In these end times, each book fills a specific need in the journey as we answer that call. I'm convinced that our Father is challenging each one of us to allow him to make us holy people of God and is willing to impart himself to those who submit to his call. Holiness will cost us everything. But then, what else should we desire if we call ourselves Christians? It was written by Jim Corbett. A White Stone by Jim Corbett. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17 in the Amplified says, He who is able to hear... Let him listen to and heed what the Spirit says to the assemblies, the churches. To him who overcomes, who conquers, I will give to eat of the manna that is hidden, and I will give him a white stone with a new name engraved on the stone, which no one knows or understands except he who receives it. It's a great scripture. Jim usually put these in front of each chapter, and it's from our Father's heart. 
How many people have seen my son in your life? How many have chosen to serve me through my son because they have seen him in you? How many have turned their ways, turned from their ways to my ways because of your ways? Does your neighbor know that you are my tabernacle? Does your enemy know that you are told to lay your life down for him and have agreed to do so? Do you know that I love the abortionist, the pornographer, the homosexual? Do you know that I have sent you to them that they might see my son through you so that they might accept him? Do you have the eternity of your every contact in mind when you address them? And if not, why not? Chapter 1 of A White Stone Luke chapter 14, 23 says, Go out into the highways and hedges and urge and constrain them to yield and come in, so that my house may be filled. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 and, and verse 19 says this, Behold, I am sending you out like sheep in the midst of the wolves. Be wary and wise as serpents, and be innocent, harmless, guileless, and without falsity as doves. Do not be anxious about how or what you are to speak. For what you say, or for what you are to say, will be given you in that very hour and moment. The room was charged with a combination of anxiety, excitement, and fear as the time approached to get on the bus that would take the agitated group of teenagers downtown. Those who had been witnessing and hand, handing out tracts before were expressing a bravado to those who visibly had lost much of the cool they normally displayed. Age seemed to mean far less than experience in a situation like this, even if the total of that experience amounted to one other time. For high school students, the normalcy of the pecking order, older, always superior to younger, was a comfort zone. So this compounded the situation. Younger kids who had experienced this type of event knew this was one of those rare opportunities to have an upper hand and played it for all it was worth adding to the already off-balance nature of the evening. Hey, Tom, the bus is here and we've got a problem. It was Fred Taylor, the assistant youth sponsor. Extremely insecure and needing much attention, Fred seemed to thrive on problems, or at least he took great pains to let others know he was the one working them out. Gangly and having a natural abrasive nature, he commanded very little respect in most of his actions. Most people simply tolerated having him around. Tom Bracken, however, had specifically chosen Fred as his assistant. Fred had come to him often in his low periods and confided how lonely he was. It seemed the natural thing to do. When Tom asked him, hoping it would help give him the feeling of being needed, many times Tom wished he had found another way to try to help Fred. The kids had extreme difficulty identifying with some of his ways and were there seemed to be more work for everyone since he started. What's up, Fred? Tom asked, somehow knowing that Fred's problems were not always as earth-shattering as they were made out to be. The driver said he couldn't wait any more than two hours from our 7 p.m. drop-off time, which is one half hour short of our scheduled two-and-a-half-hour time allotment. Fred always talked like that, and Tom had all he could to just not respond to the feelings that were stirred in him each time this sort of emergency of Fred's came about. We'll be okay, Tom said. 
Just let everyone know that the pickup time will be one half hour earlier. You won't need to print new agenda cards, Tom said, anticipating the next overwhelming Fred problem. Just tell them to change the time themselves. We'll make it. Fred gave Tom a salute to show that he understood. Tom simply raised his eyes and sighed as if to say, Lord, help me. He acts like Barney Fife from Mayberry, little Sammy Bronson said casually while licking the last remains of ice cream off the stick of his ice cream bar as he walked by. Be nice, Tom called after him with a grin and pointed a mock threatening finger toward him. Sammy smiled over his shoulder at Tom and raised his eyebrows as if to say, well, it's true, isn't it? Tom could only smile. He does, he thought to himself. The bus ride into the inner city was filled with the usual last-minute jitters. Prayers for wisdom and boldness were heard throughout the ship to save the lost and hopeless humanity. As Sally Wright, future romantic novelist and hopeless romantic herself, assessed the venture. The beginning of this eventful evening lost some of its glamour soon after Charlie Fish, due to his nervousness, lost his cookies. But those kinds of things should be expected. In fact, in the four years as youth sponsor, there wasn't too much that could surprise Tom anymore, except for Fred. Okay, people, Fred exclaimed in his non-authoritative manner that made you want to cringe in anticipation of what would come next. Fred began, when we get off the bus, I want you all to meet on the corner of 4th and Cherry Streets. We're going to form a circle, sing a few songs before we go witnessing. Oh, Fred, please don't do this, Tom thought. It's tough enough for these kids from a wealthy suburban church to try to not look like a bunch of one-time do-gooders, but not this. Fred. Oh, please, let's not make this a circus. These people need to see Jesus, and these kids don't need the extra pressure. We're not here to get some notches in our Bibles or to show everyone how spiritual we are. Lord, please don't let this happen. From the loud groans and pleading looks in Tom's direction, it could be established that the general consensus of the opinion was the same as his. No one wanted to have attention drawn to himself. Some wanted to simply fade into the street because of fear. Others felt that it didn't glorify the Lord. The big orange bus pulled next to the curb in the corner of 4th and Cherry Street, its well-worn brakes making a grinding noise as it came to a stop. About five people cornered Tom even before the doors opened. You're not going to let him make a sing, are you, Mr. Bracken? Sammy Toddle pleaded with the earnestness of a condemned prisoner. Please, oh please. Shelley White and whined, Don't let him make us sing. Tom held his hand up for quiet and was about to speak when Bill Hofton, one of the other assistants, reminded Fred that they didn't have time to sing. They had already lost a half hour because of the bus driver's timetable. A collective sigh of relief was expressed as Fred agreed. We'll sing when we're done, he added, attempting as always to maintain some form of control. As soon as the group stepped from the bus, it was very apparent that group singing was not needed to make it obvious to anyone that these kids were not part of the neighborhood. As sheep to the slaughter would have been an appropriate slogan had not this mission been protected by God. Even though the site selected was nowhere near the really rough neighborhoods, naive youth pairing up and knocking on doors not knowing what awaited them on the other side was not wise at all unless anointed and protected by God. Second thoughts filled each sponsor as how foolish this venture was if it were not inspired by the Holy Spirit and covered with much prayer. We have a lot of daylight left, Tom spoke out loud to anyone sensing the concern. Each sponsor, knew, each sponsor knew he was reassuring them that all the daylight was safety for the kids. It was enough to comfort, if only temporarily. 
the area of 4th and Cherry Streets, as a matter of fact, 4th, 5th, and 6th Streets between Cherry and Blake was one big open field. Houses that once were beautiful and stately had long since lost their glamour and were torn down to make for a new city housing project that was to begin that fall. Now only rubble, weeds, well-worn play areas, and discarded junk occupied the three-block area. Well chosen as so as to be visible for the kids when they returned to the area seemed too open and vulnerable for the waiting sponsors. Although the time sped by because of the problems that arose as several kids returned to home base with one need or another, Tom Bracken became more interested and experienced what was going on down those streets and behind those doors than, than continuing the small talk while on the bus or sitting in a pile of tires in the middle of that area. I think I'm going to take a walk down that street, Tom said, pointing to a street on the far end of the lot. I won't be gone long, he continued, starting in the direction he had pointed, followed by Fred, who was expressing all of the reasons why he shouldn't go. The more Fred spoke, the more Tom knew he needed to go. Finally, exasperated and winded from trying to stop Tom, Fred could only watch and then retreat back to the bus, grumbling under his breath as he went. Tom marveled as he walked past houses long past their prime. They seemed like silent tombs staring at the dirtied street. Numb from years of neglect, their outward appearance seemed to indicate the dying inside of them. Totally unfamiliar with this kind of neighborhood and unaware of any potential for happiness or life of any kind behind the brown-stained shades, Tom was confused about his feelings. On that one hand, he hated what poverty had done to the people that were living here. Righteous indignation rose up within him. How could this happen? On the other hand, a compassion, stronger than he had ever felt, began to stir in his heart. The children, the broken, the hurting, all melted into a din of street noise that defiled the, or defied the hopelessness seen in their eyes, if they would look at you. Tom told himself, Come on now, fella, he said to himself. You can't do something for all of them, so just pick someone and get on with it. With that, Tom began to talk to people about Jesus. After handing out a few tracks and making small talk with two older women who were pulling a small wire shopping basket and needed some oil on its very squeaky wheels, Tom saw two young kids bouncing a ball against a building. As he approached them, they didn't even glance in his direction. A sense of annoyance, anger, even total disdain was expressed by their actions or lack of them. Tom attempted to introduce himself, and when there was no acknowledgment, tried to make small talk about that ragged, tattered ball they were using. Immediately, he knew it was the wrong thing to do. Both kids turned, and without once giving him the courtesy of looking him in the eye, scrutinized him from top to bottom. After they had completely completed their silent manifestation of hatred, they simply turned and walked away as Tom started his apology. Look, I'm sorry, I didn't mean anything. It's a very nice ball. Tom needed to shake off the rejection he felt. In fact, he noticed himself looking around to see if anyone was looking at him. He was not used to being put down that openly before, and for that matter, putting his foot in his mouth so firmly. You big baby, Tom thought to himself. A little rejection and you feel and you reel as if you didn't got been hit in the face. Grow up, man, he found himself saying out loud as he walked up to two weary-looking men sitting on a broken bench. Tom looked at his watch and noticed that the time set for everyone to be back at the bus was approaching. Twilight was setting in. Before Tom could change his mind, one of the gray-haired, toothless men spoke. "'What you doing in this neighborhood?' he said with a knowing grin. "'You a little out of place, ain't you?' 
He continued giving his buddy a little elbow jab to show that he was about to have some fun with the outsider. But then, but them are some pretty nice shoes, he said, looking at Tom's shiny maroon-colored penny loafers. Tom looked down for a moment at his very out-of-place shoes and then at the well-worn boots that the men had on. You must have some story to tell us, poor city folk, the second man spoke, so get on with it. Tom, startled at the seemingly open invitation, began telling who he was, why he had come into this neighborhood, and then told the two now silent men the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As twilight turned into darkness in this unfamiliar turf of those who thrived in shadows and hidden corners, Tom was somewhat relieved that the men cut his story short by saying that they had no need for God or Jesus or any of that religious stuff. They were fine, just the way they were, unless, of course, Tom had a couple extra dollars in his pocket. Tom reached into his pocket almost as a reflex action to their request, and then he stopped himself and said, No, not today, fellas. He thanked them for their time, and he turned to walk back to the bus, almost relieved that they weren't interested enough to take any more time. It was really, really late now and growing frightfully darker by the minute. What seemed like an adventure only moments ago now became fearful as shadows turned into threatening and somewhat unfamiliar became totally foreign. I'd better get back to the bus, Tom said to himself out loud. Without realizing it, Tom and his enthusiasm had ventured much farther from the bus than he had intended. He had broken his own rule, one he had made sure all the kids knew by heart. Tom began to walk faster each time he glanced at his watch. He knew that the bus would wait for him, but he felt he should have been more considerate and at a better example to the kids. Almost at jogging speed, Tom turned the corner to Beecher Street when something caught his eye. Nice rags, man, Tom heard from one of the darker doorways. Tom stopped so fast he almost fell as his leather-soled shoes slipped against the concrete pavement. His eyes focused on the figure emerging from the shadows. Yeah, hey, look at my Bible, man, come a second voice from the end of the building. Tom spun in reaction to the voice, then turned back in the direction that he had been heading. For an instant, he thought of running toward the bus. You a preacher man, came a third voice that belonged to a steel-eyed person who moved in front of him, blocking his only escape. Preacher man, you shouldn't be walking all alone in this part of town, he continued. Yeah, the first voice said as he moved directly to Tom's right. Someone might see those fine clothes and think you might have a lot of money or something, he continued. Do you have a lot of money, preacher man? The third man said as he pulled something from his pocket. The light from the lone street lamp danced off the shiny metal object, and as it did, Tom's heart sank. He knew that there was more to this than money. As each man became more visible, it struck Tom that even though their faces and clothes were different, they all looked the same. Their baseball caps were all cocked at precisely the same angle, and their eyes, facial expressions, and movements all gave the situation the feel and appearance of a well-rehearsed play. It was as though tough had been practiced, and the next choreographed move could almost be anticipated. As feelings of fear, anxiety, dread, and helplessness swept over him, an involuntary nervous smile formed on Tom's face. Unfortunately, this only aggregated his captors. You think this is funny, preacher man, said one of them. I think we need to show you how serious we are. And as that chapter comes to an end and leaves you hanging on the edge of your seat, we'll pick it up again next week with chapter two. I hope you enjoy this read. It will take us on an adventure 
again, this is a, a book I'm very, very familiar with, and I'm excited to be bringing it to you tonight uh, as we do this on our story time over the next uh, quite some distance now. We'll uh, be going through this book. I pray that you find yourself intrigued, now wondering just exactly what's about to happen to this youth sponsor in an inner city neighborhood that he doesn't belong in. And let it let it rain in you, the things that he's seeing and speaking. I know we're early in this chapter, but I pray that you take to heart the scripture that's been spoken, the, the question from our Father's heart that I was giving you at the very beginning. But Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, He who is able to hear, let him listen to and heed what the Spirit says to the assemblies. To him who overcomes, I will give eat of the manna that is hidden, and I will give him a white stone with a new name engraved on the stone, which no one knows or understands except he who receives it. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for following along on our podcast. Thank you for your financial support, your prayer support, your friend support as we continue on this journey of seeking out that which is lost so that it may be found. Rhonda and I love you. We'll talk to you again real soon.